Good morning, church. Let's begin our, our worship this morning by standing and reading God's word. Let's read this together. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Taken from Hebrews. You may be seated.
indeed. Thank you, choir. <clears throat> Thank you, church. Are you happy to be here? Awesome. That's that may be about the best response I've received since I've been standing up here doing this. That's fantastic. Let's all stand as we continue our worship. We're going to sing Rejoice, the Lord is King. Maybe.
into wine. Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you. None like you. Into the darkness of shine. Out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you. Power our God, our God. Into the darkness you shine, out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you.
people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Hebron Baptist Church. We exist to glorify God by inviting every person to take their next steps toward Christ. My name is Alan, and it is such a joy to join with you all in worship today. So glad to be with you all. If you are a guest with us here today, we're so glad that you're here. We want to extend a special welcome to you. Thank you for coming. We would love to get to know you. And one way that we can do that is through a Connect card. If you like, we invite you to pull out this Connect card from the seat in front of you. If you'll fill this out, this will let us know how we can be praying for you, how we can serve you. After service, if you exit through these central doors, you can turn left, and you'll see our Next Steps desk. There you can turn this Connect card in. Someone will be happy to answer any questions that you may have, and we'd love to give you a free gift. So welcome. Welcome to our guests. We like to encourage our faithful worship through giving. If you'd like to give, there's a few ways that you can do that. One way is by pulling out this online giving card. This card is also in the seat in front of you. If you pull this out, you can scan this QR code with your phone. That'll take you to our online giving page. If you prefer to give in person, there are black boxes on the back wall here. You can also drop into the office Monday through Thursday, 9 to 4.30 if you prefer, or Friday night to noon, or write to P.O. Box 92, Hebron, Kentucky, 41048. All right, well, we're going to transition now to a moment of prayer. I invite you to please pray with me. Good morning, Father. Lord, we, we praise you this wonderful morning for who you are. Thank you for letting us come together and worship you as a church family. We love you, Lord. And this morning, we lift up to you our church value of sacrificial giving. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for giving to us so very graciously. Thank you for each need you've provided for us, for each breath, for our daily bread, for providing for us this amazing church family, the fellowship you let us have here. And thank you most of all for so selflessly and sacrificially providing for our greatest need as Jesus stepped down in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, Father, for giving to us. Father, we desire to respond to your generosity by being sacrificial givers, by being like you. We know everything is yours, all of our time, all of our treasures, all of our talent. It's all yours. It's all from you. It's all for you, and we offer these to you. We hold them loosely in our hands, Lord. Lord, please use all these, all the things you've given us as a gift back to you for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray, Lord, this morning not only for ourselves, but we lift up to you Chiswick Baptist Church across the globe in London as they worship you today. We pray for Pastor Steve Messersmith. We pray for this congregation, asking you to bless them, to refresh them with the good news of what an amazing giver you are to them. And we pray you would encourage their hearts to be sacrificial givers. Lord, being in London, we pray that this local church would reach not only the locals, but people from around the world who've come even temporarily to London and we pray that as those people are reached, that your good news might go back with those people to their home countries, that you would use this church to spread your good news to the world. And Lord, with our hearts focused on the world, we lift up to you, Ukraine. We pray for Ukraine with its conflict with Russia, and we continue to ask that you would bring peace. Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom to the government leaders there. We pray that you would be so present among those who have experienced so much loss. Those who those who've experienced loss of family members, who have very limited resources, Lord, who need basic necessities, please be present. 
please provide for their needs. We pray for children. We pray for parents, for the elderly. Please provide for them. And Lord, in this dark situation, we pray that your spirit would be on the move. We ask that your good news would spread even in this dark situation. Please give strength to believers. Lord, let them stay strong in their faith. Be with missionaries. Use them brightly in this dark time. Finally, Lord, we come to you with our greatest need, and that is that we have sinned against you, a holy God. Lord, we come to you with sins in our heart from this past week, from this morning even, sins of pride, of selfishness, of lust, sins of destructive habits, and we ask that you would please wash these away. We confess these to you and pray that the cross of Jesus would cover us, that you would give us what we don't deserve, a righteous standing that's only because of Jesus. We thank you for him taking away our sins, and we pray that you would wash us clean and make us yours, making us your own children through the, the precious blood and sacrifice of Jesus. We worship you. We, we rejoice. We thank you for what you've done through the gospel, and we continue to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue our worship this morning, let's stand. And the next song, yeah, that's okay to stand. Yeah, we do that in honor of God. <clears throat> we don't do that just because there's a reason for it. Uh, the next song is called, entitled Cornerstone. And I want you to, to pay attention especially to the words uh, of this particular song. It's a song we've sung a thousand times. Uh, but uh, so often we just kind of get into that routine. You know, you get into a routine of getting up and coming to church, and you just kind of, oh, yeah, I checked the box. Uh, that's not what we're about. Uh, we're here to worship God. We're here to worship the king, the only king. There is only one king, there is, and, and his name is God. Um, and the song is called Cornerstone. Pay attention to the words as we sing this together.
seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging church is that we're able to stand before him faultless on that day how firm a foundation is our next song if you notice there's a bit of a theme this morning Excellent work 
What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. omnipotent hand When through the deep waters I call you to go the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow for I will be troubles to bless and sanctify to your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only desire your dross to consume and your gold to Thank you for your singing this morning. We, um, 
This last week, Sean and I and a few others from church were at a pastor's conference and uh, about 12,000 people there. And as you can imagine, mostly men. And so the voices, the singing was incredible. So loud and encouraging. Um, but very, very little in terms of female voices. So it was good this morning to hear ladies, to hear you singing uh, and joining us in song. Um, when we're singing that last song, there's not a lot of opportunities to teach that. I just want to take a moment, some instruction. When we sing How Firm a Foundation, have you ever noticed who's talking? Who's talking? It's, it's God speaking. So when we sing that song, we're singing it to each other. We're encouraging one another with those words. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That's God saying, I will never leave you. And so that's us telling each other, I will never leave you. Isn't that encouraging? I hope that when we sing that song that we'll remember that. But um, this morning we're, uh, we're going to finish up our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 starting in verse 24. If you didn't bring a Bible with you and you want to grab the Pew Bible, it's page 861 in that black Pew Bible in front of you. But yeah, we're in Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. So the, in the next week, uh, this, this coming week actually, we'll mark the 11th anniversary of the tornadoes that came through Tuscaloosa and Birmingham, and am, amongst which our house was destroyed. We lived in northern Alabama at the time. And our house was, I mean, by God's grace, we weren't home. We would not be here if we were. Our house was completely flattened. There was no, no, nothing standing uh, to our house. We had a frame house, a siding frame house. Across the street, our friends, and fellow church members actually, uh, had a brick house. Their house was still standing when the tornado hit. Some, they had some significant damage in different places, but the house as it, as it, as it was, was still standing. And so all of us, the entire city, and, and I say city, I use that term loosely, it's a population of about 2,000 people. So town, village, um, we're all in one spirit and mind, everyone's dealing with the insurance companies. <laughs> like We're all just constantly talking about, hey, what did your insurance company do? Hey, what did your insurance company do? And, and um, so that, that's what made up our conversation for several weeks after that. Um, but one of the things that was really interesting when I compared the process of my house to the process of my neighbor's house, um, it was very easy to tell. The insurance company, matter of fact, they'd already been out before the first time I saw it, and had already called it a total loss um, because it was abundantly clear a raccoon couldn't live in my house anymore. But across the street, when he was dealing with his insurance company, they looked around, they were like, it looks like it's probably still fine. <laughs> and, uh, as you, but if you were to walk around and look, there's little cracks in his brick walls all over the house. But the insurance company, and I won't tell you which one it was, <laughs> the insurance company didn't want to call it a total loss. They wanted to fix it as it stood. And he was fighting and fighting and fighting, and eventually, I think, we're talking about this week, I think he eventually ended up having to get out a loan to tear it down and rebuild it because his insurance company wanted to fix it. He was thinking, I don't want to live in this house if I'm constantly concerned it's going to come crashing down on my head any moment. Can you imagine living in a house you were constantly concerned was going to come crashing down on your head any moment? House is supposed to be a place of rest, right? Shouldn't feel that way. 
Our text today describes a life lived in that very same way. A life lived where any storm or difficulty comes up could bring it crashing to the ground. So let's look at the text. We're going to read Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. And this is what it says in the Christian Standard Bible version, the ones in the pew rack there. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Let's pray together. Father, we've heard your word, we've sung it, we've prayed it, and now we're going to preach it together. I pray that through the preaching and the hearing of your word that we would avoid a great crash in our own lives and that we would build on a foundation of obedience to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is sort of the bow at the end where Jesus ties up the whole thing. So today we're going to look at four truths from this last part of the Sermon on the Mount that sums up and, and sort of uh, gives us the charge to obey uh, the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and really to obey all of God's word um, at the same time. So firstly, we're going to see if you're taking notes, because the kingdom is otherwise elusive, we must build our lives on obedience. The beginning of our text starts with the word, therefore. And if you're in my life group, you're used to me saying this. Uh, we need to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore, right? It's an important part of biblical hermeneutics. In, in other words, it's an important part of reading the Bible and understanding the meaning of it. We see the word therefore, it points us back to the previous text. Now, uh, Pastor Allen was faithful to preach that previous text, but just as a reminder for those who may not have been here to hear it uh, or haven't uh, caught up with it online, um, in the previous passage, there was a moment where people who had been driving out demons in Jesus' name come to the judgment seat of Christ, and Christ says, and they said, uh, uh, we, we said, we we we, we cast out demons in your name. We said, Lord, Lord, and how is it that we're not getting into heaven? And Jesus says, I depart from me. I never knew you. So just some, some background on that text. I actually learned this recently in my, in my uh, spiritual warfare seminar for my doctoral work. I never do this before. So it was common practice uh, among, uh, among Jewish people in this time period to, um, to evoke the names of, of different unfortunately, gods 
uh, to drive out demons. This practice actually existed before the Gospels. Uh, this, if we look in some of the rabbinic teachings, we see this practice again and again of, 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 of doing spiritual warfare, but since the Bible, since the law, the Torah, didn't have instructions on how to do that, they began to take instructions from the outside world, from the, from the, from the, the nations around them. And so when they're driving out demons in Jesus' name, they're using Jesus' name as a magic word. Like if I say the name of Jesus, I'll, I'll be effective in driving out demons because they'd seen it work before. They'd seen the disciples cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they thought, well, if they can do it, surely so can I. But the problem is that the name is not a magic word and the power to cast out the demons doesn't come from the utterance of that name. The power comes from the Lord God, and it goes through the people that he has set aside for that purpose, the people who have a relationship with him, right? So, in a sense, you could say they were struggling to understand what they were doing and what they had done wrong. If they weren't, if they weren't following God, if God wasn't pleased with their acts of casting out demons in Jesus' name, then what is it that God really wants and the answer to that is, depart from me, I never, what, knew you. You knew about me, but I didn't know you. There was no relationship. They thought they could just manufacture this ability and that it would just happen by cause and effect. But they didn't have a relationship with God from whence the power actually comes to do good works. That relationship is what was necessary. That's what makes the kingdom clear. When she was little, my daughter Sarah Beth, when, uh, I believe it was when Joshua was, was a baby uh, one time, he was, he was laying, I think, in the floor and screaming and crying. And uh, we were in the other room, and to some extent, you kind of learn, sometimes you just gotta let it go <laughs> and ignore it for a bit, so otherwise you'll go crazy. So we were in the other room, and suddenly the screaming and crying stopped. And we went into the other room where Joshua was, and he wasn't on the floor anymore. He was in a swing. He'd gotten there because his sister picked him up and put him in the swing, which you think, oh, that's fine. How old was Sarah Beth at the time? Four. She was four. Not fine. Not okay. We needed to have a conversation with Sarah Beth because she had seen us whenever one of the kids were crying. She had seen us pick him up, and go take him over to swing, which fixed all crying in our household. So she's like, she was thinking, I can manufacture this. I can be a good helper, right? She, if you know Sarah Beth very well at all, she's just like, she is going to be, she's a mother decades before she's actually a mother. She's very mothering. So she thought, I'm gonna be a good help, and I'm gonna pick up my baby brother and put him in the swing. It turned out fine, he didn't, she didn't drop him, um, but that's still not a good practice to just maintain all the time. So we had to have this conversation, and she was so confused. I thought you would want me to stop the crying. And we said, we wanted the crying to stop, but it's not your job to mother him. He has a mother. He has a father. And you're not old enough, but most importantly, your relationship to Joshua is not his mother. You're his sister, and you're not that much older than him. <laughs> which is need for constant reminder in my house, you're not that much older than he is. 
So your relationship to Joshua is not the kind of relationship that gives you the right to pick him up and put him in the swing. In the same way, we need to understand that the kingdom, although we're going to spend our entire time this morning talking about obedience, but before we do that, we need to realize that the kingdom is first and foremost a function of relationship. The kingdom of God, being in the kingdom of God, is a, is a reality that belongs to a people who have submitted themselves to God as their king. They have a relationship with God that they have submitted themselves to as king. If we, like many who say, Lord, Lord, are inclined to miss the point of the kingdom, and those uh, that said, Lord, to Lord, 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 in, in last week's text, if they're inclined to miss the kingdom, um, what way, is a good question, we might ask ourselves, what way are we inclined to miss it? What are we inclined to miss? In our case, I think, and just in my conversations with people, um, both at our church and just in general, I would argue that one of the things, that in ways in which we are inclined to miss the kingdom, is to understand, like, like the people in, the, in, in last week's text understood it as a, a power that you can wield. Right? So that's how they were misunderstanding the kingdom. The way we, we might be inclined, and I see this a lot, and in my own heart, I'm inclined to miss out in the kingdom, is to see it, the kingdom, as a knowledge base. Right? So if we were to join the kingdom, what would you do if the kingdom were a knowledge base? How do you join it? You go to a class. You learn about the kingdom. You read the Bible, and you learn about the kingdom. Now, let me be the first to say, I'm not against learning. I'm working on my doctorate right now. Obviously, I don't have a problem with the fact that we do have things to learn. But the people in the passage before the one we're looking at today, those people thought they could learn how to do um, demon exorcism, and they couldn't because it wasn't a learning thing, it was a relationship thing. So the same thing for us. We're inclined to miss the kingdom if we think the kingdom is a knowledge base for us to gather. And this is the foundation of what something we kind of call, we don't talk about it a lot from here, but we talk about it a lot in individual conversations, what we call obedience-based discipleship, okay? This is very, very important for us as a church. It's one thing to know, and the Reverend Joe says knowing is half the battle, right? There's the other half, I just, I just drew an age line just now because everybody above my age laughed and everyone below my age. And so G.I. Joe, the end of this television show cartoon when I was a kid, there was always a moral at the end, and they'd always say, right, Joe? And he's like, yep, and knowing is, or knowing is half the battle, right? That, it's the same way in, in the Christian walk. It, it is important to know, but we need to, um, we need to have relationship, and we need to be in obedience to the king, kingdom. Because like I said, the way into that kingdom is submitting ourselves to the kingship of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, we have to be obedient, which is why so much of what we do is about obedience. If you're part of a, D, of a D group, you're walking through the three-thirds process and you get to the end of the process, and what are you supposed to do? Set goals. And then the, the next time you meet together, what's the first thing you do? You talk about whether or not you did the goals you set. So we read the Bible, we study it, but then we set goals. Then we apply it. Then we do whatever the text tells us to do. 
Similarly, we set up this gospel to every home, which, by the way, meets today at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Child care is provided. as uh, a shameless plug. We do that. We have this, you might say, program, which has become kind of a dirty word in the last 10 years. But programs exist to facilitate your obedience. We don't just stick stuff on the calendar because stuff is supposed to go on the calendar and so that we have stuff to put in our bulletin. You might think so, but we don't. We have a purpose for all the things that we're doing. And the reason that we do gospel to every home is to reach our community, but it's also to mobilize you to obedience. We constantly talk about sharing the gospel, and we're trying to give you an opportunity to do that. Some of you are like, well, I don't have lost friends. Well, I will take you to lost people. Come on with me. We'll go see some lost people. Okay? So that's what Gospel to Every Home is about. That's what Life Group's about. When we gather together to have conversations to apply the text we've heard preached on Sunday morning, what's the point of that? The point of that is to apply the text, not just to go back over it and make sure we know everything about it, right? We've, we get the, in a sense, you might say, in the Life Group model, we get the knowledge base here during our preaching time, and we get some application, but then the life group then takes that application one step further. It's that important to us that we literally program it in our church calendar so that we will together see discipleship as an, as an obedience-based and not just knowledge-based. Christ demonstrated this in his example. He lived out this example in front of us in the Gospels. We see Jesus' constant obedience even when we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a moment where he says, Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from me, comma, but your will be done. Jesus demonstrated to us obedience even when he didn't want to. That's what obedience-based discipleship looks like. You can demonstrate this elusive kingdom in your workplace when you are obedient to your boss. I mean, uh, with some caveats, if your boss tells you to curse God or something, you don't do that, obviously. But we can actually demonstrate this obedience in our lives, at our workplace, in your school, as, as being a person who generally is compliant with the directives given you. We give an example of what that kingdom looks like. When the kingdom itself then, so the first off, when the, the, because the kingdom is elusive, we must build our lives on obedience, the kingdom isn't always clear, as we've said, but it's certainly clear that suffering is always on its way. So the second point we're going to see here, if you're taking notes, because suffering is inevitable, we must build our lives on obedience. And that's what we're getting into, into our text improperly here. Now, if we look at the circumstances of these disasters in, in the parable that we read, we see the things that are testing the foundation are rain, flooding, and wind. Now, in a normal temperate zone, rain, flooding, and wind, do they only ever happen every once in a while? No, they happen all the time. Maybe not all the three at the same time, but when you're building a house, you need to be prepared for all three because they are all coming. This is a normal experience. It happens to everybody. The rain, the wind, and the flood is coming to every person. I'm not just talking about judgment, although that is coming. I'm talking about the normal suffering that takes place in every life. 
The house in the story, in the parable, needed to be built to last through these common phenomena. I think about a few times I've worked on construction, and this isn't uh, code everywhere, and so if you're, if you're like a contractor and you know this stuff, if I'm, if I'm misrepresenting this, I do apologize, but I have put on roofs on houses with something called hurricane straps, and I have put roofs on houses without hurricane straps. It's basically a function of whatever my, the crew chief told me to do on some mission trips, right? But I put hurricane straps, which is a piece of metal that holds, that you, that you connect the trusses of the roof to the rest of the house so that it's not just screws and weight holding that, the roof down, but if the wind comes, it doesn't lift the roof right off the house, right? You do that in places that are landlocked. I've done that in landlocked states. Why would you put a hurricane strap in a house that's nowhere near the ocean? We're preparing for realities that are coming. It's not a hurricane, then a tornado, or a straight line wind, right? We're preparing that house. Um, spiritually speaking, um, we need to be prepared for that as well. Uh, if we look at like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus warned us about this. He says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in an example that you should follow in his steps. So suffering is a normal part of the life. We need to be ready for that to happen. The best example, if you know your Bible, you probably know where we're going next, the best example in the Bible of suffering comes from the book of Job. Job is the story of a man who suffers but we get the unique opportunity to pull the curtain back on the story and see that in this specific case, we can see exactly what's going on when God allows the suffering to happen to Job. But one of the things I want to zero in on in chapter one specifically is what Job is like. At the end of the story, Job comes up, turns out to be a, a model for perseverance through suffering. So as I was looking through this text, we were actually reading the book of Job in my D group, as I was looking at this text, it stuck out, several things stuck out to me. First, verse one. In Job one, it says, there was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. Those two verbs, feared and turned, are the kind of verbs that suggest that it was an ongoing thing. It didn't just happen once. It wasn't, there was an occasion where Job feared God. It wasn't like there was an occasion where Job turned away from evil, like once. But it was a constant thing. That's the way the grammar reads. In Job 1, verse 5, it talks about him often. It says, whenever a sound of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them. Again, would send, that's that constant verb, would, would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. All these verbs are ongoing. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. And in case the grammar wasn't clear, this was Job's regular practice. Job had built into his life regular habits of holiness. And that's a very valuable thing that prepares us for suffering. Last in verse 8, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity. Again, who fears God, turns away from evil. This is a consistent behavior in Job. And it's a consistent behavior in Job before suffering comes. It characterizes him. As a matter of fact, if we read the entire first chapter of Job, it's the reason Job was targeted for suffering in the first place. He was known for this. He was known for this among the heavenly host. 
There's a meeting of the angels and Satan and God, and they're all talking about Job. Wouldn't it be great if we lived lives of holiness to such an extent that there's water cooler conversations going on about how holy our lives are? What a great thing to aspire to. He was prepared for suffering because he was in the habit of holiness. He was constantly obeying God before the suffering came. The text tells us the rain, flooding, and winds came to both houses in exactly the same way. One house was built on the sand, one on the rock. The same storms came to both houses. Right? This is, a nor- this is, this is an ex- expectation for everyone. No matter what foundation you built your lives on, storms are coming. So we look uh, back at the text again. It says, everyone who hears and acts on it, right? So that's, that's the thing that, that we're inclined to miss. We're inclined to say, everyone who hears the word builds their house on, on a good foundation. But that's not what the text says. He who hears the word and obeys it. So this is the foundation for obedience-based discipleship. Um, and this, by the way, helps us to read God's word. I found this great quote from Bobby Jameson in a book that he's written on aspiring to be a pastor. And he says, the real test of whether you are mastering scripture is whether scripture is mastering you. The real test of whether you're mastering scripture is whether scripture is mastering you. Are you being changed by it? Are you building habits of holiness that come out of your Bible reading? So we saw that those um, in the previous text who have barred from the kingdom are working from a knowledge-based discipleship model. They're not changing their, they're not being formed and changed by the word. So we've seen first off that because the kingdom is is elusive, we need to build our lives on obedience. Secondly, we see that, um, that because suffering is inevitable, we must build our lives on obedience. Thirdly, to endure to the end, we must build our lives on, on obedience. To endure to the end. The first, the house that was built on the rock didn't collapse. That's not to say it didn't lose a shingle or two, right? Like, that's a normal part of storms. No matter how well you build a house, unless you build a hobbit house that's underground, maybe that might be a better way to go. But if you're building a regular house, there's, there's going to be some storm damage. Even if it's a really well-built house, there's going to be a shingle off here or two. But the integrity of the house will survive the storm, right? The foundation is built well, Despite the wind and my neighborhood, man alive, it's just like a wind tunnel constantly. And you can hear the house creaking and groaning. But by God's grace and the skill of the builders who built my house, it just creaks and groans and that's the extent of it, right? It's not going to come crashing down on my head. Um, so it says, the, the, the one who put their, built their house on the rock was not destroyed. But it says the one who, doesn't, who hears the word and doesn't act on them. Uh, I want to point out something about that phrase. It says, the one who hears the word and doesn't act on it. That word does not indicate breaking a rule, okay? So if we want to look for an example of that word, we would go to Matthew chapter 5, same book, same author. He uses the word in chapter 5, verse 19. It says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. So here, Matthew is using the word that we translate break, like to break the law. That means when God says, thou shalt not kill, we kill. That's the breaking of the law. But if we look at this text, it doesn't say break. It says the one who hears the word and doesn't obey it. 
right? That's not just the negative, doesn't disobey God's word, but doesn't obey. God's told us to do something, and we've not done it. That's the one who builds his house on the sand, the one who hears the word and doesn't do it. One of the things that stands out in this passage that stood out to me as I was reading it, because the, the first house and the second house are so similar despite their foundation being different, but the, the, the circumstances of their testing are the same. But the second house, there is a, there is a very um, strong emphasis, and it collapsed. And in case collapsed wasn't clear, it collapsed with a great crash. We're meant to notice this. Right? Because when storms come and lives fall apart, they don't just kind of fall apart. When, when there's no foundation, they come to a halt. They're destroyed in that. Jesus promises us in his word in Mark chapter 13, when he talks about the tribulation to come and the suffering to come as a result, and he's talking about as a result of, of following God, but I think we can apply it to general suffering, in verse 19 of Mark 13, he says, For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now, and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut these days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. So God is not going to allow our suffering to just go on and on and on and on and on and on. We can hope in the goodness and kindness of our Father that he will eventually Cut it short. So we must endure to the end. We need to be prepared for this tribulation, realizing that there is another side, so we keep pushing through. Our kids have, in the past, and uh, probably will at some point again, have run in, in a sort of a community cross-country team. And, uh, and, and they, they run different lengths for their ages. And one of the reasons why I love this and why we've put our children in this is because we want them to learn grit. So grit is that idea of, you, of continuing to go even when you're tired. Um, so every, it seems like every season, we begin the season out with lots of graves. All right, we're gonna run this you know, mile or two, and they start to go, and you start to see them slowing down, and then they're walking, and then they're stopped, and they're picking weeds, and they're talking to their friends, and, Right, so like there's a certain amount of grace at the beginning and you build this, this thing over a few weeks where after they've been running every day, after a couple of weeks, you start to say, now see if you can do the whole practice without stopping, right? And for some of them, they do that. And for others, nah, not so much. And over time, and you make some goals for some of the other kids uh, that by the end of the season at least, they can make it through an entire practice without stopping, right? We want to build habits in the season as early as possible to not stop. Because as soon as when you're tired, you stop. You've taught your body that that's the thing you're supposed to do when you're tired, right? So we're actually build, they're actually building habits to not do things when they're tired. Well, that defeats the entire point of long distance running. You have to train yourself to keep going when you're tired. And it's amazing what you're capable of, what everyone is capable of doing, even when you're tired. So we train them, like when they're at a hill, you've got to run all the way up. If you get used to stopping halfway up a hill, you're gonna stop that way in the race. And, two, and the kids are like, no, 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 no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it easy this time, and I'm gonna run the whole thing in the race. And two a one, they never do. And I'm always like, I told you, if you don't run in practice, 
you're not going to run in the race. They'd never believe me, right? But that's a, that's a reality. So you've got to build, they've got to build habits to just keep going even when they're tired. One of the reasons why we do this with our kids, one of the reasons why we take them on these insane backpacking trips, and some of you are like, how could you do that to your children? But um, I want to teach them grit. I want them to learn that some stuff is hard, but it's worth doing. In fact, I tell them all the time, all the best things in the world to see are at the end of a 10-mile hike. Um, that's, that's my opinion. Um, it's been my experience. There are some amazing things to be seen at the end of a 10-mile hike, but that is a 10-mile hike. That's no easy thing, right? So we want our kids to have this, this physical grit, but I also, and I think these are related, I want my children to have spiritual grit. I want them to be able to endure to the end. How many of these statistics have we seen where children grow up in the church and they walk away as soon as they're not held accountable anymore, right? It is kind of funny when we're in practice. I always start in the back of the line so the kids are running, everybody's starting out and they're just doing really well, really great. And I start in the back and I'm just taking my normal pace and I'm gonna catch them. Some of them I'm gonna catch them because I'm faster than they are, but a lot of them start out faster than me. About a mile in, they could hear, thump, 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 and they go, <gasps> and they start, they, they, like they've been stopping because nobody's looking because the coaches are miles away. So as soon as they hear my heavy footsteps coming up, they start to pick up the pace. <laughs> because Mr. Mr. Mark is on his way up here, and I don't want him to see me stopping. So we build these habits of godliness in our lives, like Job did, to lead a spiritual grit that helps us to endure to the end. This is a good message for those of you who, who haven't trusted Christ yet, who are considering the claims of Christ, who are thinking, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure if I'm ready to jump over that edge yet. I, it is important for us to know, and in this it is important to know that there's a cost. There's a cost to following Christ. It's hard. It's supposed to be hard. In this culture, it's a little easier. You don't get that much persecution, but a lot of the rest of the world, we share the gospel with people. We're like, look, if you, if you follow Christ, if you get baptized, you could be disowned by your family. You could be killed. There's a legitimate cost. But even where it's easy to some extent or easier here than in other places, there's still a cost. This isn't a fad. This isn't something we put on for a little while and then put off. This is something that we endure to the end. Some other examples, and we see this in the news all the time. We see these once uh, Christian speakers and, and musicians and leaders, and they, they're starting to deconstruct their faith, and they're starting to walk away from their faith. What's interesting to see, and in my experience, every single one of these circumstances is preceded by a sin fall, Right? The, the, the marriage falls apart and, and because of, of infidel, infidelity, the marriage falls apart and then deconstruction happens. Um, uh, somebody falls into addiction and then deconstruction happens, right? It's, it's after this great sin destruction that the, the, their, their faith starts to be deconstructed because we've got to build these habits of obedience in our lives because that's where that endurance comes. And when our, when our walk is maintained, when we continue to be obedient to God, it's interesting how all the things that we trust in tend to stay in place. You can demonstrate this endurance in, your, in the workplace. What if Christians, what if Christians were known as people who stuck it out, who ran the whole time, who worked hard even when they were tired? 
who obeyed their boss even when they were annoying. What if Christians were known to be that way? I think they should be known to be that way. If we can endure to the end spiritually, if we can go against Satan's attacks by God's power, I think we can get through a couple of difficult shifts, don't you think? We ought to be known as people of grit. This is the way we plan ministry at church. We plan things for the long haul. We don't want to just have somebody just blow up and be excited and then fall away. We, we're, we're building disciples for the long haul. But here's the problem for you and me. Left to our own devices, we tend to stop running. Like those kids in the cross-country team who after the coach is out of sight, they start slowing down and walking. That's our tendency. And so we look at this text and we hear what I've just said and you might think, I am hopeless. I have built my life on everything but obedience. I give up at the slightest provocation. There's good news for us. Because lastly, in verse 28 and 29, we see that because of Jesus' authority, we must build our lives on obedience. When the, the, says, when the scribes and everybody around them was, or when, when everybody around Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount heard him, they were amazed at the way he spoke because he had such authority, something that the scribes never had. The scribes were experts in the, in the law. They knew it frontwards and backwards. They, you might say, had a knowledge-based discipleship process. They learned everything about the Bible, but they couldn't speak with authority. They couldn't tell somebody, this is what God says, you should go and do it, because they didn't have that authority, because it was based on knowledge, instead of based on the authority of God. So, um, Jesus is contrasted with the scribe, scribes whose concern was textual accuracy. Jesus speaks as one who can command and have, have that command followed. It's the difference between head and hands. Luke 9, verse 35, this is the story of, uh, of, of, uh, on, the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. The voice of God comes down and says, <laughs> this, is, this is always funny, Peter says, oh, we should make tents, because there's Moses and Elijah and all these guys. We should make them tents so they can stick around. And then right, it says immediately, uh, the voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. Which is God's really nice way of saying, shut up, Peter. This is my son. Jesus gets an introduction from God the Father to, the, to his disciples to say, this is the one that you should listen to. This is the one you should obey. And that's why he speaks with authority. I remember they used to have these commercials, and I don't know if you remember them. And I make this joke enough now, and I don't get enough laughs when I'm normally under normal circumstances such it's been long enough the commercial's been that people don't remember them. but y'all remember those Holiday Inn Express commercials there was that one where um, they're, in a, they're in a surgery room like in, a, in an operating theater and uh, this guy comes and starts barking orders and they're like are you a surgeon? he's like no but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night like, and so the, the, the way that these commercials always ran was if they had a good night's sleep, they were able to do these amazing things. They like superpowers. And so I, ideally, you go to the Holiday Express, you get an amazing night of sleep. So, but the, but the, the, the joke, the reason why that's funny, or at least it was funny on the, on the, on the commercial, the reason why that's funny is it's ludicrous. <laughs> you don't want somebody operating on you just because they stayed at a medium-priced hotel last night. Like, that, you, that is not enough for them, for you to be comfortable with them cup cutting you open and making sure everything makes it back in when they're done. There's no hope in that. You want somebody who has 
been there, who has studied it and has done it a million times, that's the one you feel comfortable with. That is what Jesus has. He's been there. He has suffered before us. He knows it. He knows our suffering. There's nothing that has happened to us that didn't happen to him. He knows the temptations that we face. Our time is not unique. We might think, oh, we live in a secular world. The the biblical people didn't have to deal with that. You better believe they had other stuff to deal with. Satan is doing the same thing today he's always been doing, right? So Jesus has been through all of it. And on the other side, we get the Great Commission where Jesus starts out, before he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, what does he say? All authority has been given to me. He knows our sins, he knows our temptation, but he also has been victorious over those things. He went to the cross in obedience, even when he didn't want to. He said, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but your will be done. He obeyed for us, before us, and he went to the cross, and he died. And you want to talk about suffering? We have a word that exists because of the cross to describe our worst suffering imaginable, the word excruciating. The the core of that word, we use it all the time to describe our worst pains. The middle of that word, you see the the letter C-R-U, as in crux, as in crucifix, The word excruciating comes from the idea that the pain that comes from crucifixion, the worst pain we can imagine, the worst suffering that there is, Jesus experienced that for us. And he experienced that so that we don't have to experience it collapsed with a great crash. Jesus collapsed with a great crash. He built his life on obedience. He built his life on the rock. And he collapsed with a great crash and gives us the foundation that he built. We've built our lives on the sand. Every one of us have. This isn't one of those parables where we look at the other guy and say, oh, I got my stuff under control. It's him that doesn't have his foundation in place. All of us have built our lives on the sand. And if we have not obeyed, which we haven't, myself included, then we await the rains and the floods and the winds to tear everything down. But that will not happen for those who have followed Christ because we get his foundation. We build our lives on the obedience that Christ has made for us. And we never have to know that crash. The story is ultimately a parable. It's an example of what a life of obedience looks like versus one of disobedience. But if we have not fully understood what it means to collapse with a great crash, we've not understood the parable. It is only when we view the cross, the humiliating, torturous, barbaric cross, we truly understand what it is to collapse with a great crash. Agonizing death and separation from God is what it means. But the good news is we've seen it. Jesus has experienced it before us and for us, that we can be made into the kind of people who build their lives on obedience on the rock of Christ. Your choice today is between facing collapse or facing stability when the storms come. Which one will you choose? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we as a people would be a people who build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the obedience that he 
did for us, showing us the way, but also making us right before you and giving us your spirit that we might be empowered to obey. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to continue to build on the foundation you have laid for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Let's stand. Our closing song today is entitled Christ, a sure and steady anchor. As I mentioned earlier, you've you've heard a theme throughout uh, the worship today. Uh, And uh, this is a time of invitation. Uh, Maybe Christ is speaking to you. Maybe you're getting that gnawing feeling. Maybe, maybe this message or the songs have stirred something in your heart you, and you think, no, I'm, I'm not over on the rock. I'm, I'm over here in the sand. Well, this is your opportunity to come to the rock. Give way to glory as we draw. 
Isn't it good to know that through every storm that we face, that we have a cornerstone, a foundation, we have an anchor, we have the solid rock. Amen? We pray that if you are far from God, that you would trust in God today and His Son, Jesus Christ, and that you could build your life on Him as your cornerstone. I'll be at the Next Steps desk if you'd like to talk about that or talk about baptism or any of those things. We'd love to talk to you about that before you leave today. A couple quick reminders before we leave uh, this morning. First of all, as uh, Mark gave that wonderful commercial already, uh, that Gospel to Every Home is at 4 o'clock today and there is child care available. So we hope that you come out. There should, it's going to be a beautiful day. Might want to bring some sunscreen today, and, uh, but there'll be child care so uh, no excuse for you to come this morning and knock on some doors and again as we've said if you're not comfortable uh, in doing that we'll partner you with someone who who has done that before and this is a great way as Mark said this is a obedience based uh, that you can learn how to do it that you can grow in this and so uh, we look forward to seeing you here at four o'clock today. Uh, if you're not part of a life group, we hope that you'll find one. Uh, those are ways that we get together and apply the text, live life together, and grow together. And so if you uh, aren't part of one but would like to know how to be part of one, stop at the Next Steps desk uh, before you leave today, and we will get you connected and let you know where they meet and when they meet throughout the week. If you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. Make sure you take that Connect card filled out to the Next Steps desk to get your, your, gift, uh, your guest gift before you leave today and that we can connect with you a uh, couple other things if you haven't heard and you've not been listening when there's announcements and if you haven't been reading your emails uh, on May 22nd there is the anniversary our 60th anniversary we're celebrating uh, together we are having all the uh, former pastors that are alive will be here. Many of our former worship pastors, many of our former staff people, uh, many of our other members, former members are going to be in town, and we're going to have a celebration and thank God for what he's done in setting us as a church uh, here in our community to declare the gospel. So we hope on May 22nd that you mark your calendars, that you are here, and that you, are, uh, that you make this a day to celebrate with your family so that one day your children can celebrate one day down the road when it's the 75th anniversary of the church and, and we can see uh, all that God has done in the life of Hebron Baptist Church. Now, one of the things that you need to do, now, are you listening? All right, some of you black out when I'm doing announcements. There is an action step, okay? There is something you must do from the sound of my voice after this service. K is going to be are you going to stay, are you going to be out there, Kay? Okay, Kay 
is going to be out there, and we need to get a number for how many will plan to be there and stay for the lunch following service. Let me tell you, you are going to want to stay. We're talking barbecue and chicken for the kids that don't like barbecue and all the homemade style fixings. You're going to want to stay for this. But we, and we, look at this, we are going to pay for it, but we need to have an accurate count. So we need you to let us know that you're planning to be here. Now, in the emails that you didn't read and the announcements that you didn't listen to, I'm not going to point, I'm going to start pointing people out sometime, uh, but uh, that the deadline is next Sunday. All right? So it would behoove you, that's a big word, to go out to the, 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 the hallway today and tell Kay that you're going to be here. I think I've made it pretty plainly obvious what you need to do when you leave the room, right? Okay? So make sure you go tell Miss Kay that you're going to be here May 22nd. Uh, this is the weekend before Memorial Day. So it's the weekend before Memorial Day. So make sure that you have signed up. If you are at home watching this, this is your reminder to either email or call Kay, send Carrier Pigeon, or text her in some way to let Kay know by next Sunday. Okay? Last announcement. Uh, I think I've beat that horse of plenty there, okay? But it's going to be a great day of celebration. The last thing I'll remind you about, Annie Armstrong Easter offering, many of you have generously given to that. We're thankful for that. We're many, thankful for the many ministries and church plants that that supports throughout the year. Uh, if you have forgot to give that to that offering, Easter's over with, but that's okay. Please make sure you give today to that wonderful offering. Uh, many of our church planners are supported by that. So just a last reminder to do that, and then uh, we'll be blessed through that. Thank you for being here today. May you go in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our sure and steady anchor, and tell others about him as you go. God bless. Promise of your